The views that I express on this podcast are mine, and the same for our co-host Juan Pablo. Well, they're his. Listening to Panoptic, relating theories of communication, power, and technology to practical institutional issues and everyday life. Welcome to the podcast. All right, hey Juan, how are you doing? Good, Jason. How are you? I'm doing well. Um, a lot of change in the COVID world, right? Uh, it's it's not, a not not an optimistic way. It's a it's a strange time for thinking, but that's we have a lot of time for it. How's your quarantine going? Um, not bad. It's, uh, still very busy with work, uh, managing all the stuff we're doing remotely, but, uh, still can't complain because I have a job Yep. and, you know, I, I noticed that the real rate of unemployment today is nearing 25%, which Whoa. is, uh, not good. Yeah. Uh, we have meat and dairy shortages, inflated price of groceries. There's states rushing to open again right now and businesses, don't really know uh, when to open their doors again. So a lot of kind of ambiguity. That's yeah, it's a very strange times and I think times that are going to mark uh changes that we hard to foresee at this point. So but a good time to be talking, very a good time to be talking about our subject for today, right? So ideology, radicalization, two sides of a coin. Um, and, and today we ask the question, how do you, how do you make someone change ideologically? Uh, yeah, it's really, it's really fundamental to this question of change right now. And apropos, given the the yeah. situation we find ourselves in, right? Yeah. Whatever, whatever changes are made now during COVID are going to create our future world. I, I've been hearing talk, talk about how this is a time of political opportunism for those who see it. Um, if you take, let's say, Naomi Klein's idea of disaster capitalism, a time for people to see a, ch- a time to implement, let's say, changes uh, in education that are long-lasting. Uh, maybe it's a good time to start getting rid of as many teachers and teaching in the classroom and start moving things to online, right? So change is what we're going to talk about today in the COVID world. Well, let's just think about change more broadly before we get into the meat of it. And I like to... Uh, you know, in the past, we talked about change practitioner Paul Gibbons, who argued that uh, change needs to be the expectation and the culture for organizations to succeed in the long run. And in particular, uh, the works of Jim Collins, he wrote How the Mighty Fall and Good to Great. They cite him a lot in the business schools. Uh, he suggests that complacency and reacting to change on an ad hoc basis can contribute to the collapse of powerful institutions. So, we might understand the proclivity for such unsustainable business practices and attitudes in the context of the dominant neoliberal ideology, uh, which seeks indefinite growth. And we touched on that in our episodes on uh, automation and you know, global deindustrialization. Uh, but more than that, change practitioners like Brian Gorman, who's a podcaster at the Change Management Review, and Keith Katani, the CEO of GuideSpark, and uh, probably many others, they observe that today change seems to occur faster than ever before. The need to continuously adapt is uniquely heightened due largely to the global technology environment, rapid access to information, and consumer expectations that organizations have to respond immediately to uncertainty and crisis. And take, for example, the U.S. government. Right now, many federal agencies are implementing already outdated and defunct systems. Um, they struggle to keep pace with the rate of technological change in other areas of the economy. Um, large private firms control the preponderance of technical knowledge, and this contributes to the government's dependency on tech consultants to continuously re-engineer the way agencies do business. And, you know, another obvious example of unprecedented change is, of course, the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic, having essentially forced us to move our work and social lives almost entirely into digital environments. 
So Paul Gibbons' answer to the challenge of this unprecedented change is what he calls in shameless consulting speak, change agility. So for an organization to keep pace in an ever-changing environment, it must be structured, staffed, and acculturated to continuously embrace change. And one of the major challenges here is this, how do you make your stakeholders agile to change? In particular, your senior employees who become experts in the use of defunct systems over a 20-year career. How do you tell them we're going to do things differently without causing a panic? Uh, so the thing about any business process is that if the end users don't accept it, then you never actually realize the target future state. Uh, the competitive edge, efficiency, or cost saving that motivated your decision to change in the first place, right? I think there's a lot to unpack here, and we could give you the generic top 10, here's how to manage change in strange times, but there are probably 15 articles on LinkedIn with the same exact title. So for the current episode, Juan Pablo, uh, we decided to tackle the more fundamental question, what causes someone to abandon or replace deeply held beliefs, attitudes, and behaviors? And we should acknowledge multiple levels of human change, for example, fundamental ideological changes compared to more superficial skills changes. So uh, Juan, I'll hand it off to you. How are we going to address this problem? Well, you know, we, as we spoke about a little bit at the beginning, Jason, this whole idea of change and how does one affect change, but also what is it that, that structures people's beliefs, attitudes, and behaviors uh, in the first place? What is it, how is it that people form these, maintain these, uh, produce, reproduce these? This brought us to, to these two concepts, right? Ideology and radicalization. These sort of, the first one, of course, people have used it or they have heard it. it might seem highly academic, but as I think we'll show in this episode, it has, uh, it allows us to, to think about this question in very concrete terms of how people force form beliefs, attitudes, and behaviors. Um, and how does one then, uh, in a sense, operate with this knowledge? Whereas the second term, I think, uh, you know, Jason, is, I know it's, some, it's a topic that you've been interested in for a long time. I think it puts into stark relief this question of ideology. What are, what are in a way, how does one go from one belief system to another? And what is considered, let's say, a consistent or a or a belief system that could be generally shared by people as opposed to one that is an outlier for whatever reason. Uh, this, the idea I think uh, is that radicalization or that idea would, that notion of radicalization would help us think about how uh, beliefs can change or even become in a sense extreme. Yeah, so uh, you make some good points. So I think what we should do is think about what is radicalization and then move from there into um, where does ideology fit in the radicalization process? Because often when we think about individuals who radicalize, or when we hear people talk about people who radicalize, they often leave out the ideology or downplay the role of ideology, and they tend to focus on kind of the grievances or um, economic uh, conditions that led to it, which are very important. But I also think the ideological part is also very important and lends itself to a, uh, an anal a communicative analysis and where, where does communication fit into this and socialization and acculturation. So mm -hmm. that's kind of the angle we're going to take this. Yep. And uh, before we go down that path, um, let's just talk about the state of the podcast quick and do a little bit of housekeeping. Sounds good, Jason. So before we get into it, we just wanted to um, give a quick shout out to our subscribers. Um, specifically, we noticed that we've been getting a lot of international listeners from the Netherlands, the UK, Canada, Australia, Germany, Finland, Sweden, uh, Sweden Ireland, and many others. So I don't know how they're uh, discovering the podcast. We're still figuring out how to um, you know, get it out to, to all you uh, potential listeners, but... Um, Awesome. Thank you for, for tuning in. I don't know, uh, Juan, if you have lots of uh, international friends who are discovering us that way. I, I don't know. I don't have that many. I don't know that many people in any of these countries, maybe some in Germany, but not that many 
but if there are any people in Germany that uh, listen to us who who uh, list got in the list or got to know the podcast through me, that's you know wonderful, and I salute them. But great to hear that there's people from other places around the world, Jason, listening to our podcast, and I'm yeah. excited that for them to keep listening. Unfortunately, uh, I haven't seen any uh, Greek listeners. So certainly my uh, Greek family members have not been tuning in. <laughs> Maybe there's a language problem there. Or an interest problem. <laughs> anyway, if you listen to us regularly, please make sure to follow us on Instagram or Twitter. Um, these are our primary mediums for getting information out to you in between episodes. Um, we're also moving the podcast in the direction of more interactive engagement with listeners. So if you're interested in sharing your stories, receiving uh, panoptic perks, and contributing to the conversation, please make sure to follow us on Instagram or Twitter. Um, alternatively, you can subscribe on our website to receive personalized uh, emails from Juan Pablo and myself. Uh, lastly, during the uh, previous few episodes, we mentioned our new segment where we address stories from you, the listeners. But what kind of story? So, well, most of us will encounter familiar work-life challenges, like a micromanaging boss, teammates who take credit for your work, situations where we find ourselves in unlevel playing fields. So this is the practical stuff that Juan Pablo and I discuss and argue about all the time on the show. So we're inviting you to share your stories. We'll do what we always do, uh, present our critically and managerial, managerially informed analyses and recommendations to at best help you be successful, or at least give you a healthy chuckle. And we'll be giving this a shot on episode 16. <clears throat> so get in touch with us on Twitter, Instagram, or through email. And by the way, as we continue to identify creative ways of engaging with you, the listeners, the best way for you to stay informed beyond just listening to the podcast is to, again, follow us on Instagram or Twitter, or um, subscribe by submitting your email through the website. All right, did I cover everything? Yeah, please support us on Patreon. Patreon, yeah. M money is good, too. Money is a great way to support us. We understand that uh, many of you uh, won't have that luxury uh, or privilege, uh, especially during the current moment uh, in our uh, history, and that's totally reasonable. If you do have the means and if you appreciate what you hear, um, whatever you can offer is highly appreciated so we can continue doing what we're doing and uh, do it uh, even better and uh, increase the scope of what we're doing as well. Yeah. Okay. That's all I wanted to say. Should we get into it? Let's get into it, Jason. So, radicalization, uh, a model for understanding fundamental ideological change. Um, that's where we're going to start. So, during my time at uh, Johns Hopkins University, I spent a few semesters studying applications of strategic communications to counter-extremism policy. Um, and you can read my article on... Um, Oh, man, I can't even remember where it's published. It's the CICE Review of Foreign Policy. Well, just Google my name and you'll find it uh, <laughs> if you're interested. <laughs> uh, but the, so the study of radicalization is fascinating on a lot of different levels, but particularly fascinating for change in comms practitioners, given the important role of persuasion in moving an agent from cultural normativity to counter or anti-cultural activism and or violent behavior. So... The study of radicalization seeks to illuminate the conditions and processes that correlate with ideological change. Of course, there have been many attempts to describe the radicalization process. Across the board, theorists tend to agree that the presence of trauma or collective trauma is necessary for someone to accept new ideology. And researchers typically classify traumas or strains, um, per this comes from Neil Smelser's strain theory back in 1962, um, these strains prime for radicalization classified as socioeconomic deprivation most of the time. So that includes like poverty, geopolitical conflict, institutional racism, and the like. But strains by themselves fail to explain someone's decision to join a radical group. And the article we read in preparation for the current segment offered the following Leon Trotsky quotation. The quotation seemed apropos to me. Um, it's this, the mere existence of privations is not enough to cause an insurrection. If it were, the masses would always be in revolt. So in other words, a majority of the world's population is stricken with trauma most of the time. 
However, the vast majority of victims choose not to promote or inflict violence, so you need something more than strains to explain someone's decision to adopt violent beliefs and behaviors. Before we press forward, we need to address the elephants in the room, Juan Pablo. What do we even mean by ideology? What uh, makes one ideology normal, but another ideology radical or extreme? And if we can't answer these questions, then how can we accept radicalization as a valid concept? And unfortunately, these questions are really difficult to answer. Um, but we're going to address them. In short, as long as we can ground radicalization in some normative foundation, and I'm speaking for myself, I think Juan, you might have a slightly different answer to this question than I do, uh, which we'll talk about, but then I think we can accept radicalization as a valid concept. But this abstract line of thinking shouldn't distract from the visceral reality that sometimes people have violent beliefs and they commit violence. And this remains uh, a critical social problem, whether or not we accept radicalization as a valid concept or not. So why don't we address the process of ideological change first, and then we'll circle back around to these more difficult questions. Sounds good, Jason. Let's, let's do it. I uh, really appreciate Quentin Wiktorwix's cognitive opening framework for understanding radicalization. And it specifically addresses jihadist radicalization, but also provides intuitive principles for understanding ideological change in general. And that's really why I appreciate it. So uh, some background, Wiktorwix uh, received his PhD in political science, specializing in Islamic uh, movements from American University. And uh, I just found out he apparently he now works in private equity before making the career change, though, he served as a senior national security advisor to the White House and as a professor at Rhodes College, Dartmouth College and uh, Shippensburg University. So I don't know why uh, the career change unless it's just a cover for the CIA or something like that. Money. <laughs> Money. Oh, there you go. Yep. <laughs> I mean, that could be that could be yeah. <laughs> most likely. But in most of the, most of those people, like security type people, well, I'm, no, I'm taking a step back there. Um, they like money too, but they also seem to have a wider um, mm. patriotic commitment sometimes too. In my experience, because you don't you don't yeah. really uh, make money, but you do get a lot of power in these kind of covert roles. Wiktorwix's mm-hmm. framework goes beyond rudimentary frameworks that fail to explain how someone moves from trauma to the adoption of ideology to extreme behavior. He also modifies typical conceptions of strains um, to include personal traumas, like a death in the family or a divorce, um, and moral outrage. So a kind of trauma that is realized th- through um, socialization or exposure to troubling narratives through conversation. And uh, my fiance, who specializes in trauma, by the way, in attachment studies, uh, she's informed me that um, singular traumas versus multiple developmental traumas or complex traumas like incur- uh, that, that like occur during childhood, they can produce different internalizing and externalizing outcomes. So she'll have to come on the show sometime to tell us about that. Uh, for the purpose of the current segment, generally speaking, Many types of traumas can be sufficient for producing what Wiktorwix calls cognitive opening. Yeah. So we could probably this? also speak of the way both of these could be interrelated, uh, multiple developmental traumas and, and uh, uh, intersecting with complex traumas. Uh, so developmental yeah. traumas that, that uh, create either a pathological quote-unquote personality orientation or personality type um i could imagine uh, hypothetically or speculative being speculative could be more prone to to then radicalization given a let's say some kind of uh some kind of singular trauma later on that would be uh that would be destabilizing for 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 forming an identity or stabilizing an identity. But we'll talk about this a little more, a little farther below. Yeah. I've even come across research that says the closer the trauma or series of traumas to birth, the more serious ramifications for someone's um, cognitive health there can be. 
which obviously can can lead in the worst case to sociopathy or psychopathy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I'm sure that plays into this. Yeah. So what is cognitive opening? Um, Cognitive opening refers to a state in which someone becomes receptive to the possibility of new ideas and worldviews. So it is the first of four stages in a radicalization process, according to Wiktorwicz. And the second stage is religious seeking. So the individual seeks meaning through a religious idiom. And remember, this is specific to jihadism, but we'll talk about the wider applicability when we move beyond jihadism. But the, the third stage is frame alignment, which is the public representation preferred by the radical group that it makes sense to the seeker and attracts his or her initial interest. And the fourth stage is socialization. The individual experiences religious lessons and activities that facilitate indoctrination, identity construction, and value changes. So according to Wiktorwicz, the first three processes are necessary prior conditions for the fourth, which is socialization. So in other words, if an individual is not open to new ideas, uh, doesn't encounter the movement message or rejects the movement message after initial exposure, he or she will not participate in the kinds of movement activities necessary to fully disseminate ideology and convince uh, other individuals to join. Uh, and we should also know that socialization in a broader sense by causing moral outrage, which we mentioned earlier, this can create or contribute to the cognitive opening in the first place. So the process isn't necessarily linear. All right. Um, so we can look at the case of the Boston bomber, uh, Tamerlan, uh, Tamerlan Tsarnaev, who I profiled during a semester at Hopkins. And where Torwix's framework can help us understand how Tamerlan came to execute one of the worst terrorist attacks in American history. Uh, and I'm going to selectively focus on aspects of Tamerlan's life that came to light in the aftermath of the Boston bombing. This isn't to empathize with Tamerlan, but just to try to understand the process itself. You know, it's an interesting test case. And I, I think uh, one thing I'd like to discuss a little bit uh, farther on, something you mentioned is uh, this specific framework uh, designed by Victor Vicks, which emphasizes as a second step, um, what he calls religious seeking, is really interesting because it will allow us to talk about what I think is a, a centerpiece of thinking of how ideology works, which is the way it presents general, the way it presents uh, a certain set of interests as generalizable universal interest, or in some sense, uh, generalizable uh, interest that should be adopted by everyone because of their uh, their supposed. Uh, let's say validity or their supposed kind of superiority and uh, and this is where we get into I think some dicey or difficult questions about what can be considered radical as opposed to not radical what can we actually consider a generalizable and that is it just by that I just mean simply a set of interests that everyone could in theory um, agree to uh, so one thing about, let's say, radical, radicalization or radical ideologies that some, let's say, we, we could consider radical would be the way they would present a certain set of values as general, universal, or even valuable if, if, an, uh, if only people realized that they were so. But in a sense, they, tend, they seem to foreclose or close off, let's say, create lines of division between elements of humanity or assume that a certain fundamental perspective uh, that might be either cultural-specific or religious-specific would have to be adopted as a general interest, which, of course, creates a lot of problems in a, in our, uh, in a, in a sense, somewhat secularized context. But something more to discuss uh, in a minute. I think it's uh, seeing how this uh, person, Tamerlan, how his develop his process of development of radicalization can help us talk about this more in a in a more concrete sense yeah and i think you're you're touching on the the crux of the hard problem that's differentiating um uh, extreme from normal ideology um <clears throat> or if that's even a, a possibility in in uh, particularly in a, in a democratic political framework so 
um, more to follow on that. If we look at um, Tamerlan Tsarnaev, the profile of Tamerlan Tsarnaev, let's think about um, Tamerlan uh, first, um, starting with the stage one of Wiktorowicz's process with strains and cognitive opening. So I think we can pinpoint some of the possible strains that culminated in Tamerlan's cognitive opening. Um, in no particular order, they include a sense of non-belonging and or purposelessness, um, identity struggles, family rifts, perceived cultural weakness, and political grievances. So I pulled some specific examples. Um, firstly, Tamerlan's childhood can be characterized as nationless, warring, and constantly on the run. So he was born in 1986, and spent most of his youth in Kyrgyzstan. After the bloody Russian invasion of Chechnya in 1999, Tamerlan's father, Anzor, was fired from his job as part of the large-scale purge of the Chechens from the ranks of the uh, Kyrgyz government, and the Tsarnaevs fled to um, Dagestan, but the war followed them. And in the spring of 2002, uh, Anzor and the mother of Zubidat and the brother Johar, um, who was... Uh, uh, Tamerlan's uh, accomplice in the Boston bombing, uh, they all traveled to America on a tourist visa, and they applied for and received political asylum. And for some reason, Tamerlan stayed with uh, relatives in Dagestan for two years before meeting his family in America. The family eventually settled in Cambridge, Massachusetts. So uh, Tamerlan, he never really accepted Cambridge as his home. And even within the local Chechen and Muslim community, he struggled to make friends. So according to a Chechen acquaintance of the Tarnayevs, um, neither Tamerlan nor his brother were authentic Chechen. And I'm quoting here, uh, they had not come from Chechnya, and I don't think the other families accepted them as Chechens. They could not define themselves uh, or where they belonged. So um, that's one of their uh, the family's Chechen acquaintances saying that. So Tamerlan was really uh, an outcast in this uh, community. So for a period, Tamerlan found happiness in competitive boxing, and he wanted to emulate his father, Anzor, who was also a talented boxer. And, and he dreamed of competing in the Olympics as an American. But in 2010, his boxing career ended abruptly. He was disqualified due to a new policy that banned non-Americans from competing at the national level. So of course, we're being selective here, but Tamerlan's story is bursting with alienation, identity crisis, um, and, you know, he wasn't American enough. He wasn't Chechen enough. Overall, he wasn't good enough for anyone. So this type of victimology is typical of the extremist profile. And it's likely the cause of Tamerlan's cognitive opening from Wiktorowicz's perspective. So now we're moving into the second stage, which is religious and purpose-seeking. So after Tamerlan's boxing career failed, he started to read far-right countercultural media, namely Alex Jones's Infowars, the anti-Semitic weekly, American Free Press, and the white supremacist tabloid The First Freedom. Um, there's a 2013 um, Southern Poverty Law Center article that states Tsarnaev was not the only American extremist to have blurred the lines <clears throat> between far-right and white supremacist beliefs and radical jihadism. Um, so that's, I think that's interesting how in a lot of these cases, actually, you see that there's a process of exploration um, delving into different conspiracies and exploring different types of ideologies before settling on the one that causes the change. So you see that a lot in mm -hmm. um, uh, individuals who radicalize uh, in the West. <clears throat> I'm losing my voice here. So Tamerlan's mother, Zubidat, seeing that uh, Tamerlan was struggling, she encouraged him to rediscover his religious roots which he did. So between 2009 and 2013, Tamerlan became increasingly orthodox. And Tamerlan tried but failed to assimilate into the local Muslim community. And members of a local mosque claim that Tamerlan regularly disrupted sermons with angry outbursts. And from Tamerlan's perspective, the local Muslims were not orthodox enough. So moving into the third stage, frame alignment. As part of Tamerlan's religious-seeking process, eventually he stumbled upon the web-based Inspire magazine, which is a jihadi newscast sponsored by Al-Qaeda, and the sermons of um, Al-Qaeda leader Anwar al-Waki, uh, posted in video form to YouTube with English translation. 
So Al-Qaeda's political literalist interpretation of Islam, an anti-American, anti-Western diagnostic, deeply resonated with Tamerlan. And jihadism provided a home where Tamerlan had none. It validated and channeled his anger against those who rejected him. Uh, it villainized Western culture and offered a clear solution, first to join and defend his brothers overseas, and second to kill Americans. So lastly, we move to the fourth stage, <clears throat> which is socialization. And in a way, Tamerlan self-radicalized by consuming extremist media on the web. Uh, but socialization also reinforced his ideological transformation. Through social media, Tamerlan connected with like-minded jihadis. So in 2012, Tamerlan traveled to Dagestan. He was gone for six months. According to FBI investigative reports, during his time abroad, Tamerlan probably fraternized with jihadis and terrorist cells. So this socialization process may have been the final determinant underscoring Tamerlan's decision to return to Boston, recruit his brother Johar, uh, build pipe bombs, and execute one of the worst terrorist attacks on American soil. So using Wiktorowicz's four stages, we are able to at least try to explain how someone like Tamerlan moves from A to B to terrorism. And this is helpful because if we can understand the process, then perhaps we can develop effective interventions to circumvent the process. So before we get to that, how did uh, Wiktorowicz develop this framework? His, his approach is actually really interesting. He studied members of the extremist activist group Al-Muhajirun, I'm just going to call them AM because it's easier to say. So AM, they're a transnational Islamic movement based in the UK that supports the use of violence against Western interests in Muslim countries and the establishment of an, of an Islamic state through a military coup. And the movement has been linked to Al-Qaeda and is known to radicalize Westerners into insurgent and terrorist groups. So Wiktorowicz's four-stage model is based on interviews with 30 AM leaders and recruiters. So let's address the limitations of this research, or the possible limitations. So Wiktorowicz's findings are narrowly focused on one particular brand of Islamism, meaning political Islam, in the UK. And these 30 activists cannot be representative of the pantheon of global extremism, from violent political Christianity and anti-abortionism, to extreme nationalism and white supremacism. Uh, for example, stage two, religious seeking, which we talked about, it's not likely to be generalizable to all radicalization processes. Uh, in fact, Wiktorowicz offers the following qualifier that the preponderance of radical religious recruits will have pre-existing religious backgrounds. So what causes a Sri Lankan to fight for the Tamil Tigers or an American prisoner to join a neo-Nazi movement each radicalization process is likely distinct. However, cognitive opening, <clears throat> the pursuit of meaning, frame alignment, and socialization have wide applicability beyond the confines of AM radicalization. So Wiktorowicz characterizes his approach as ethnographic. One of the main differences between ethnography and more traditional social scientific methods is that the former allows for the researcher to subjectively insert oneself into the research. So to be fair, Wiktorowicz's methodology makes sense given the paucity of access to reliable sources on radical groups. He argues that the ethnographic method provides insights into radicalization that are virtually impossible to generate through other methods. To access sources and collect data, Wiktorowicz had to win the trust of AM leaders, uh, challenging risky work. So he embedded himself in the movement he developed rapport and empathized with movement leaders and gained a unique human understanding of how otherwise culturally normative Westerners came to join AM. And actually, change management professionals apply a similar method to assess organizational stakeholders. Through building trust, developing rapport and empathy, we attempt to elicit psychometric and behavioral insights with important implications for effective organizational strategy and policy development. So an important difference is that our stakeholders typically aren't terrorists, um, although I've encountered some really stubborn individuals who've made me fear for my life or, or career. 
Overall, Wiktorwix offers a general framework to understand how someone becomes open to ideological change through strains and cognitive opening, and ultimately incurs ideological and behavioral changes through the self-pursuit of meaning, frame alignment, and socialization. Among these four stages, frame alignment provides good insight into the challenges associated with persuasion or changing minds in general. Think uh, Aristotle. So logos, your argument needs to be, or needs to flow logically. Ethos, your argument must include at least nuggets of truth or reflect the audience's basic perceptions of reality to establish credibility. And pathos, persuasion requires knowing your audience. You need to pull on their heartstrings a bit to stick the landing, right? According to Wiktorwix, only when there is frame alignment between individual and movement interpretive orientations is recruitment and mobilization possible. That is, the movement schemata must resonate with an individual's own interpretive framework to facilitate participation. So this alignment is contingent upon fidelity with uh, cultural narratives, symbols, and identities, the reputation of the frame articulator, the consistency of the frame, the frame's empirical credibility, and the personal salience of the frame for potential participants. And that's a quote from Wiktorwix's text. So in a sense, recruiters are faced with the business challenge of identifying and researching their market and branding a credible mission, purpose, and narrative that resonates with the experience of potential recruits. So without resonance, ideology doesn't stick. Groups like AM, um, other groups like Hitchputahir, uh, Al-Qaeda, ISIS, etc., they finance and organize recruitment hubs worldwide through the web, designing strategic campaigns to lure in potential recruits, much like predators. So recruitment techniques aren't so divorced from any traditional advertising campaign. Ironically, these techniques originate with Western market capitalism, to which jihadi, activist, and terrorist groups are diametrically, ideologically opposed, supposedly, right? So ISIS at one point published a very high-quality journal called Dabiq, and it was really well-written. It was in English, and it's polished with colorful design, and the journal was marketed towards young Western male adults through the web. And they make YouTube videos, organize Facebook groups, build large Twitter followings, and are these techniques effective? Well, in the U.S., according to the uh, GW program on extremism, since March 2014, uh, 204 individuals were charged with offenses related to ISIS, and 149 of them pleaded, <clears throat> pleaded or were found guilty. So in Europe, the numbers are much higher. But overall, we're not talking about a mass exodus of Western recruits into jihadi terrorist cells. As a caveat, there are different levels of involvement, right? It's possible that some individuals empathize with the movement. They don't go all in, ending up dead or in jail, but they may support the cause through subtle forms of activism. So I don't say this to downplay the problem of jihadi radicalization, but rather to impress the challenge of frame alignment given an ideology that most are likely to perceive as highly extreme and reject outright. So this also explains why vulnerable individuals with religious backgrounds are more likely to be lured into radical religious movements. The frame alignment is closer from the start, meaning the recruiters have an easier job sealing the gap. So cognitive opening and socialization may have wide applicability beyond the narrow confines of security policy. Imagine strategic actors who are incredibly skilled at identifying vulnerable individuals with cognitive opening, people who feel alienated, who lack purpose or identity. Imagine algorithms that target vulnerable individuals by analyzing social media activity. This is the dream for political campaigns, advertisers, salespeople, all kinds of special interest groups. What about socialization? Consider the multi-level marketing scheme, which I really want to do a dedicated episode on. These are cult-like predatory cons who conduct massive outreach and lure vulnerable, unsuspecting potential recruits. They convince you to attend one meeting only to find yourself in a lecture hall receiving motivational pep talks from a car salesman in a suit. They make you feel like you're part of an elite leadership group and they tell you stories about the economy, about work, about making money. They tell you that you're smarter than that. If you just work hard, if you just invest $1,000 in a premium artisan entrepreneurial knife kit, you just might retire at age 30 with millions in the bank. This is socialization and ideology working in tandem to influence behavior. And we all know people, friends, 
uh, even family who have been lured into these kinds of things. In more general terms, if you provide a home to someone who feels rejected and you make them feel special, they're more likely to adopt and become motivated by your stories. I realize I've presented a predatory frame of cognitive opening and socialization. Of course, these strategic insights can take on more positive frames. Groups in general can't be sustained without compelling shared mythos and camaraderie, right? So if we want to lead successful movements to affect change, then we have to apply these insights to persuade, mobilize, and lead groups. That is essentially Quentin Wiktorowicz's framework and some of the insights that we can take away from it uh, in a more general communications and a persuasive um, context. And one, you know, one quick thing I would add, Jason, to what you've been articulating is uh, is this is the notion that, and I and I want to and I want to emphasize this further on, but that the narratives through which one would have to create this a cognitive opening and a frame and alignment, or a the the narratives through which a frame alignment would be produced out of a cognitive opening would have to be yes i think you know i think you're right that it would have to be a some way provide a home for someone who in a sense has none but they have to do i think something more um they have to produce a narrative that is plausible not necessarily uh completely true but plausible in terms of the way and in terms of the way it maps reality um and plausible doesn't mean that it's completely true or completely false. It means it might take real events in the world and frame them into a narrative in a way that we might question overall, but that actually takes true things in the world and and uh, brings them to light. And you talked about how with Tamerlane is really interesting, how, uh, I guess you'll, you'll talk about it a little more in a minute, but how he's... You know, one of the narratives is particularly about U.S. foreign policy. And so there's, you know, there are actions and events that take place in, 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 that are produced through U.S. foreign policy, which which lend themselves easily to producing certain narratives about uh, the U.S.'s role in the world. So there has to be an element of truth. It can't just be a purely false narrative, first of all. And second of all, it has to uh, do something else, which is it has to tap into a real deep-seated uh, two, I would say probably two deep-seated uh, personality elements or needs, right? Uh, one of them, less, that, that would be, a, I would call social, which has to do with somehow linking up or connecting to some kind of idea of the good. Um, or again, I'm going to use this phrase, generalizable, generalizable interests. Or in a way, tapping into a motivational personality structure that might be pathological or disposed to being pathological or antisocial or even prone to violence, just as sort of as a shorthand for pathological, whether that's, and I'm going to say that with air quotes because some people would critique that notion. But, but I think it has to do these three things. It has to be a very complex it has to be a very complex process to really to really tap into motivational structures. But I'll I'll try to lay out. Um, a little later on, Jason, as you know, sort of general framework of ideology for how we might think of how these narratives would would do such a thing. But uh, let's, well, yeah. And I know you talk about, or you've touched on this concept of generalizable interests, um, maybe as distinct from the good or as kind of analogous to the good. I think that's really key because if we don't have some conception of the good or of normal or of just something basic that we can ground ourselves in, then we can't ever really differentiate ourselves, morally at least, from any other belief or attitude or behavior, right? And that's what makes this so difficult. And it's kind of, I guess, what philosophers have been debating, at least moral philosophers, for, for forever. So when it comes to policy and what you yeah. do with this and how you make judgments... Uh, it's just really impossibly hard, especially when a lot of the people who are doing this stuff at the policy level aren't philosophers and don't really think about this stuff professionally. Right. Yeah, and then let's. I think I, this is something we need to touch upon and uh, more. But as you as you mentioned, Jason, this touches on a core problem, which is this question of what is an ideology? How does an ideology produce a narrative of the good? And how specifically does a political framework 
like uh, the liberal democratic framework, which is based on a sort of opening and a plurality to different conceptions of the good, how can it then allow these to interact in a way that is not, uh, that isn't violent, right? And, uh, and I think in general it does, but it, there's always this, there's always this question of, or, or fault line between what, how, how does one include disparate frameworks, some of which, would, which may posit or propose that politics needs to overlap with thick notion of the good with a sort of like normative frame of values that are uh, religious, culturally specific, relig- um, and so forth, right? Which, uh, which in a way we could see uh, the, the specific uh, example of radicalization that you've been discussing as one which presents the values of a fundamentalist Islam, Islamic uh, political Islamism as ultimately generalizable interests uh, that if people adopted, the world would be a just place. But, of course, of course, the problem, the, 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 the huge problem is it's sort of predicated in this notion, well, if they don't accept it, it's because they're, they're lost and we must sort of, they're enemies or they're... Uh, they must be fought, right? Uh, in a in a in our sort of pluralistic, multicultural, liberal democratic, uh, politically open framework, uh, or any kind of framework that aspires to be sort of like in that notion, this is this is a political perspective that is very problematic. Other perspectives, let's say, are also very problematic. Racist perspectives, right? Um, which are which draw a line between those who can be aspired to full citizenship and those who don't already create huge problems uh, ideologically. Um, they go against this idea of, of a sort of of a sort of uh, allowing for people to decide their own notion of the good, um, not based on let's say religious, cultural, ethnic notions of what would be good or who belongs to the good and who doesn't. You mentioned this notion of a th- a thick notion of the good. Um, what do you mean by thick? You know, I I borrow that f- uh, language from discussions of philosophers about ethics, and uh, particularly perhaps a, a a a good example of this uh, is uh, Charles Taylor, the Canadian philosopher, uh, a really important philosopher of modernity of of ethics, of of multiculturalism, who has, in a way, dealt with these questions at large and extensively, and so anybody who wants to sort of delve into this question. But he has, he has this, uh, he has, I think he, I think I'm fair in saying, though some people who might know his work better might criticizes that he sort of argues that at the end of the day even in a liberal democratic multicultural framework uh he's he sort of argues as a communitarian if i'm not mistaken and so he argues that at the end of the day any kind of polity any kind of republican in in this way he's also a republican not a u.s republican but a republican in the in the uh, political philosophical sense of the word word and as a republican he sort of argues that uh any kind of Republic or political establishment has to kind of articulate a and uh, a concrete notion of what the good life is and orient political life around that. Uh, that this is impossible to do without. On the other hand, let's say opposed to some his his uh, someone like it would be someone like Habermas, who's, who's who really envisions a very proceduralist uh, notion of democracy, which does not rely. Uh, for framing its laws and and framing its uh, its institutional frameworks on any kind of concrete notion of the good, uh, but rather would be a sort of a way of to mediate between uh, individuals and their and their interactions and desires and things like that. So uh, it gets more complex than that, but those would be two poles of and these are two two philosophers who are in dialogue and in many ways overlapping in many ideas that they share in common, but have this main. One is a more of Arist- an Aristotelian, uh, and this would, that would be Charles Taylor. The other one, Habermas, is is uh, working in a slightly 
uh, more Kantian or post-Kantian line. So uh, a long explanation to your to your question, uh, Jason, but the thick notion of the good means some kind of value, uh, value-oriented notion of what the good life looked like. Let's say, let's say as a Catholic, the good life looks like a certain set of beliefs, a certain way of doing certain things and not doing certain things, a certain way of leading and orienting and organizing your life, right? But, uh, or let's say as a Muslim or as a, or as a, utilitarian <laughs> right so a thick notion of the good is one that that uh has a as a concrete set of values but that go that are very concrete that are very tangible in the sense of this is what one does as a human being this is how one relates to other people this is how one relates to one's mother and one's children and this is how one uh, this is what we consider the good life as con- as a concrete formation this is what it would look like uh this is something that i think is is a is an open question for ethics, but uh, but it gets at the heart of this uh, question of ideology, right? Um, is there, you know, in a in a liberal democratic framework, can there be politics that uh, consolidates itself around a quote unquote thick notion of the good, or is that something for each individual to determine on their own? And to be is politics more of the realm of um, of allowing for autonomies to balance themselves out, uh, and this this of course is a very problematic question from the context of ideology because if ideology always entertains a certain set of values of what's considered correct, uh, as I'll talk about in a little yeah. more. Well, in a little bit. that's a great opportunity for us to pivot into thinking a little bit more about the state and politics. I think you know what. What can the state, particularly a democratic constitutional republic, do about the problem of radicalization when there are protections on speech and religion? Do you enjoy what you're hearing on Panoptic Pod? Is the application of philosophy, media theory, and communications theory to everyday practical contexts something that you find interesting or useful? If so, please consider supporting our podcast through Patreon at patreon.com slash panopticpod. You can also access our Patreon through our website, panopticpod.com. There you can also drop us a line or a comment. Jason and I are always looking for ways to improve this podcast. Your support and comments will help us in that endeavor.